From the Western Riverside Council of Governments, I'm Rachel Singer, and this is CogCast. Since the beginning of the year, wildfires have burned over 3.1 million acres in California. To put this in perspective, this year's acres burned is 26 times higher than the acres burned in 2019 for the same time period. The devastation of these disasters calls local leaders to understand the scope of the issue and what we can do to help. Joining us on the podcast today is Councilmember Matt Ron from the city of Temecula, who also serves as the director for California State University San Marcos's Environmental Leadership Institute and Wildlife Program. So Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast. Before we jump into our discussion on wildfires, do you think you can share a bit about yourself? How long have you lived in Riverside County? Oh, I've been living in Riverside County since, uh, let's see, 2010. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So 10 years, <laughs> conveniently, for 2020. Yeah. Um, how, what, have you picked up any new hobbies this year? It's been quite a bizarre year, to say the least, but. Oh, yeah. So I've be- become proficient at Zoom meetings. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's one. Um, and, uh, you know, being being stuck at home for the, the time we have, uh, spent a lot of time doing some home improvements and became pretty proficient at tile work. Uh, believe it or not. So redid the entire staircase. Looks beautiful. Oh, wow. That's a big project. I applaud you for that. (laughs) We had time on our hands. That is for sure. (laughs) So kicking off kind of our conversation today, we're talking about wildfires. So can you just share to start us off um, your background with wildfires, just what your understanding is of them? And we'd love to hear. Sure. Sure. So my background, actually, I did a a bachelor's degree and master's degree at University of Nevada, uh, far back (laughs) than I'd want to admit, um, uh, both in uh, biology um, and then moved to California after that uh, and focused more on sort of the environmental science side Mm -hmm. of things and policy and regulation. And so did my PhD at UC Davis and in San Diego State in a joint program. Um, And it was about that time where uh, two things happened. One was I got involved uh, in the early 2000s in some projects related to wildfires, mostly after the uh, Cedar Fire down in San Diego in 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, uh, starting in about 2007, after the uh, second sort of major complex of fires in San Diego, got heavily uh, involved in a lot of the education and research related to wildfires and especially wildland urban interface. Um, Then during that time went back, got my uh, law degree um, and then have since been, you know, spending about 15 years now really focused on uh, fire issues in both uh, education and research capacity. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So just as a fun tidbit, I guess I'm originally from San Diego County and I lived in rural San Diego County um, near like El Cajon area. And so there were so many times growing up where we were evacuated because of wildfires, probably some of which you're describing right now that you were um, kind of involved in. So definitely, definitely a big issue. So in where would you rank wildfires in terms of their impact as compared to other natural or man-made events? Well, for California, uh, right now, I'd say it's, uh, it's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no doubt that uh, 
you know, over the last, uh, and really since 2003, when the Cedar Fire happened, uh, that was a devastating event. Mm -hmm. uh, it was listed as the largest fire in California's history at that time. Um, and it seems like every year or so, we're setting a new precedent and setting a new record. Um, and it's unfortunate because this year, you know, again, we're seeing things on a, on a scale that we have never uh, expected to see. Mm -hmm. um, and so from an economic perspective, one of the things we looked at uh, early on was the economic impact of wildfires. And the 2003 incident, for example, uh, just for San Diego County alone cost uh, over two and a half billion dollars. Wow. And at that time made it one of the most expensive natural disasters in the country's history. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, we've exceeded those numbers time and time again, um, and uh, and and so it's a it's a it's a devastating uh, impact to our communities. Uh, the numbers of, of structures lost, the numbers of lives lost, mm -hmm. um, and then just the economic devastation that this can have uh, is uh, is paramount. Mm -hmm, definitely. So th there's a lot of conversation about maybe the. Um impact that maybe climate change can have in the intensity and prevalence of wildfires. So what role do you think it plays in in the scope, particularly here in California? Sure. I think, you know, there's no doubt that, that climate change has an important role uh, in our conversation about wildfires. The intensity, the frequency of, of fires has, has markedly changed, especially over the last uh, two decades. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the only piece that we need to be concerned with, right? Um, there's a lot that goes into that. And, and um, you know, early on in our research, we, we identified four pieces of the puzzle that we thought were, were sort of the most important functionally when it comes to uh, responding to a, a wildland fire incident. Um, number one was uh, environmental, right? Um, and and that, that includes uh, climate. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that we don't have direct control over, you know, what mm -hmm. the wind speed is, what the relative humidity is, what the ambient temperature is. Uh, are we in a drought? Are we, you know, in an extended period of, of you know, a heat wave? You know, all of those things we don't have direct control over, but they certainly contribute significantly. Mm. Um, the other is, is one that, that has really raised to the top in our conversations, which is the uh, management of the land. You know, how we choose to manage fuels and the natural systems and the interface with our communities. And then the other two pieces of that sort of, you know, the, the legs of the chair are the resources that we have. And I'm talking about things like air attack and ground attack, the engines, the bulldozers, you know, all of that. So the resources and then purely just the number of boots on the ground. How many firefighters do we have? And those two pieces, we have absolutely 100 direct uh, percent, you know, control over, right? Um, it's, it's, it's all about how we want to pay for, um, pay for this, right? It's, you know, when you think about the managing the lands in California, the state responsibility area all by itself is 31 million acres. Wow. You add on top local responsibility area and federal responsibility area, and then on top of that, even tribal uh, lands, and then you're talking about millions and millions of acres that are, you know, relatively high risk fire uh, areas in the state. Um, and so managing that scale of land, uh, you know, it feels almost insurmountable. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're done, you have to probably start over, right? Mm -hmm. um, but resources and staffing, those are the pieces that we do have control over. And so I'm not trying to underplay the importance of climate. 
Uh, but I am saying that there's a lot more that goes on to that uh, very complex puzzle. Definitely. It sounds like a, a more robust picture with those four different elements that are kind of contributing to the prevalence and intensity of wildfires. So would you say out of those kind of four, to use your terminology, like legs of the chair, um, is there one that you think in California we can do a better job at um, kind of focusing our efforts on? Well, I, you know, we've done a lot of research over the years on uh, resources and staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I recall talking to different administrations and different uh, folks over the years. Um, we actually published the first national study on, you know, what does it mean when you have four firefighters on an engine versus three versus five? You know, how does that, how does that impact attack effectiveness, right? Uh, and going from a three-person to a four-person engine can improve initial attack effectiveness by 50%. Mm. Right. Um, and, and not only that, but it has all these subsequent benefits to the firefighters themselves. You're sharing that workload. So everybody's blood, uh, you know, uh, heart rates go down. All of their, you know, sort of uh, exposures and things start to decrease as well. And so those those are some of the most important things uh, I think we need to focus on. The other one is just the built environment. Mm. Um you know, over 95, 96% of all the fires in California are, are the result of, of human actions, right? They're not lightning strikes, they're not natural events, they're human caused fires. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we often associate this time of year with Santa Ana winds and, and fire incidents, especially for Southern California, you're not gonna typically see lightning strikes during this time of the year, mm-hmm. right? These are all human caused incidents and they're driven by wind um, and driven by the environmental conditions. But California wins as far as homes at risk. We have over 5.1 million homes built in high-risk areas Mm -hmm. uh, in the state, more than any other state in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the decisions that we make at a local level of where we put our communities and how we build them and the standards to which they are built, Mm -hmm. um, that absolutely has direct implications uh, with, uh, with our fire risk. Yeah, I appreciate your insight. Um, So kind of switching gears a little bit. So at least in um, the Western Riverside area and the Greater Inland Empire, we're seeing a huge increase in um, just population growth. How much does that growth um, contribute to the prevalence and extent of wildfires? Well, I've seen numbers and it depends on, on, you know, what data set you're looking at. But you know, uh, we're we're only about 35, 40% built out into uh, high risk areas. and, uh, you know, and that's statewide Riverside County. I don't know the numbers specifically there, but, but based, if you, if you just look at the general plan, the master plan, you know, spheres of influence and so forth of, of our local uh, cities and, and, and county, um, what you'll see is that we have a lot more growth left to do mm-hmm. uh, potentially uh, that places a lot more businesses and residences in high-risk areas. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we need to be very cognizant of moving forward. Um, I'm not saying that we need a moratorium on development, you know, absolutely not saying that because, you know, you're putting constitutional and property rights, you know, up against, you know, fire risk and so forth. But we need to make very sound decisions. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, you know, how do you build those communities? How do you ensure the kinds of protection measures that need to be there? And then, Ultimately, we really need to start thinking about, um, you know, advancing uh, our our uh, our code, right? 
to keep up with, um, you know, these, these issues. You keep hearing the words new normal um, for, for a variety of, of different circumstances. Um, and, and our code is simply not keeping up with what we're seeing there, uh, you know, on the wildland fire side. So that, you know, how do you, how you harden our communities? How do you improve, you know, community resilience and recovery from fires? Um, you know, we absolutely need to do better on that regard. Mm -hmm. And kind of, um, I guess, continuing on with that question in in this line of thought, um, you kind of started talking about some of the things that you think that the region can do to prevent and care for residents um, during wildfire seasons. But are there like, are there specific like actionable items that you think we can, that are realistically achievable, like within, I don't know, the next couple of years, like if you could prioritize, what would that, what would those things be? Uh, priority number one uh, will always go back to resources and staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we really need to take a hard look at, you know, the, the levels. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a conversation I remember having with folks in Sacramento years ago, and uh, then President Bob Wolf of, of Cal Fire Local uh, 2881 had said, pay now or pay a lot more later, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I said that phrase has always stuck with me because it, it's, it's absolutely true. What we invest today in our resources and staffing has absolutely, you know, direct implications. The problem is, is, you know, we, it's, it's a, a, a you know, we, we now refer to it as a fire year, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the largest devastating fires we have had have actually occurred in the winter time. Um, but we still get the, in our mind, we have this idea of a fire season hmm. and seasonality suggests that there's times of the year where you can down staff and, you know, shutter certain fire stations or resources and, and go back to lower levels. Um, and, uh, and that cyclical nature, you know, is problematic. And, and certainly some years are going to be worse than others because of the weather conditions, because of other, you know, incidents that may occur. Um, and so, you know, if you get a number of years and you see this happening, we, we, we tend to have a very poor institutional memory, um, you know, at a governmental <laughs> level of what this means uh, for our communities. So you have a few years where things aren't that bad and we're aggressively treating fuels and defensible space and all of that. Uh, and then people become lackadaisical and, you know, the defensible space isn't quite what it should be. And, and we haven't been aggressively treating fuels and our community forgets about things like evacuation and reverse 911. And, you know, there's a lot that we need to stay vigilant on. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you know, that is probably one of the most important parts of the conversation that needs to happen today. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's almost like this, for lack of a better term, like intergenerational knowledge that continues to roll over from cycle to cycle, year to year um, of, of what we need to do to prevent wildfires. So um, one of the things that a lot of Californians, I think, face, particularly in SoCal, um, they're concerned about insurance. So do you foresee a time when California homeowners will not be able to get insurance because of wildfires? If so, is there anything that you think that we could do about that? So so I was working with the city of San Diego after the 2003 fires, um, and I remember reaching out to the, some of the larger insurers because, uh, you know, at that time, the city was was beginning this, this effort to, you know, define what defensible space means and brush clearing and creating new ordinances and things. And so the city had reached out to the insurers saying, basically, you know, what, what would you like to see us do as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we want your input so you don't, you know, bail on, on, on your homes, you know, and homeowners <laughs> and businesses, 
and you stick around and continue. What can we do to help you and provide that assurance um, that we're doing the best we can? Um, and I won't name names or anything, but but I do recall a conversation where uh, the uh, one of the major insurers said, uh, we don't care, there's nothing uh, that, that you're gonna do that's gonna change our position. And, and sort of flippantly had mentioned that, you know, they pay more in, in broken, you know, water lines and, and washing machines nationally than they do in uh, wildfire losses, mm -hmm. right? Well, that was 2003. Today is a very different story, mm -hmm. right? And I think they're much less flippant about that because you, you look at the devastation that's occurred and the scale and magnitude of those losses, um, and it's, it's incredible. And so how do we keep those insurance companies there? Well, we need them more at the table. Since then, we do have like the, there's an insurance institute location back east that actually has a whole warehouse, a whole massive building that builds, you know, uh, structures and sets them on fire and puts them under these different scenarios to test effectiveness of different materials and designs. Uh -huh. and, and so the research is really driving a lot of what what we need to do. And, and that really is one of the most important pieces of this puzzle right now is giving the insurers, giving the property owners the confidence that what you build today will last, you know, or have a higher probability of lasting in the event of a fire. And it all comes down to how we manage our land uh, and how we manage those, those facilities. You know, a lot of people, I'll say this too, uh, they think that, you know, uh, a lot of the home losses are the result of uh, direct flame impingement, right? It comes from your backyard and, and attacks that home. Um, in, in fact, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology did some uh, uh, studies on a lot of the fires that were in both California, Colorado, and other states, and they found out that, no, it's the fire branding and embers that come off of the fire that start mm. spot fires in, you know, like the bark uh, next to your house or people stack wood, you know, next to their house for firewood or they build a wooden deck or they haven't cleaned the eaves of, of their, their rooftops or whatever. Those are a lot of the reasons why homes burn down. Mm -hmm. So we really need to start to tackle the fundamental issues of why a home or a business is at risk and what we can do to improve that. And the bottom line is, unfortunately, it, it, it not only takes the research and the science to help us understand that better, but it takes a willingness to change code. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, we're not talking about building cheaper homes, mm -hmm. right? If you, if you start to implement programs, let's say with rooftop sprinklers, right? In 2008, California said we all new construction residential requires, you know, indoor sprinklers for homes. Uh, high risk areas, why aren't we contemplating things like rooftop sprinklers being mandatory? So we can push a button on the side of the house, you know, allow that sprinkler to do its job, wet down the house, so that our firefighters aren't standing there as as, as structure defense, but actively engaging the fire instead. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a you know, this is a much bigger conversation mm -hmm. and functionally a very big shift in our thinking that needs to occur. Totally. It sounds like there's a lot of misconceptions and I'm starting to hear even in my own mind where I have misconceptions about wildfires and how it impacts um, infrastructure like homes. And so it's definitely an uphill battle that sounds like it's rooted in a lot of research that has to occur um, to change yeah. fundamentally how we approach wildfires. Um, how do we, so kind of on the flip side of the equation, I guess, so after a wildfire happens, um, how do we manage the impact of the damage of a wildfire, like loss of infrastructure, the air quality, ecosystem at, at large? What are your thoughts on that? Well, so so the other thing I, I you know, when I said that we need to change our, our, our conversation and I, and I talked about 
you know, the, the terminology we use, you know, we, should, we need to call it fire year, not fire season, right? Um, the, the same is true for wildfires. We need to call it a wildland urban interface fire, not a wildfire. You know, when was the last time, uh, you know, especially in California, where we had vegetation burning and it was just vegetation, mm -hmm. right? No assets were at risk, no infrastructure, no, no, you know, highways or streets, no communications or power lines, no homes or businesses. You know, it's very rare that we have a true wildland fire. Um, and ultimately, even if it starts that way, it becomes a wildland urban interface fire, mm -hmm. right? Um, so once we get that through our, you know, our heads and we, we, we come, you know, and we become comfortable with the concept that wildfires are a thing of the past and we have this new type of fire, that really is, is, is at the forefront of how we manage after a fire. Because, you know, the, the, the communities will, the, the vegetation community, the natural community will burn. All natural communities burn. Our, our planet is in fact, a, a, you know, based off of fire in a lot of respects, historically and otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, the issue really comes down to the risk that you have once a fire is happening within the urban interface, right? You're not just burning vegetation anymore. You're burning batteries and cars and structures and chemicals and all sorts of, of other really nasty products mm -hmm. that make their way into our environment. So post-fire, you're basically walking around a hazardous material site, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not just, you know, how does that material move into our ecosystems, into our watersheds, into our air, but all of those folks who are there for the cleanup and the first responders, they're, they're putting their lives at continued risk uh, because of both uh, respiratory and dermal exposures are incredibly high. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, probably one of the biggest issues uh, post-fire. You know, mm -hmm. communities, uh, vegetation communities will grow back. Um, and we, we tend to forget that, that there's, there's a cyclic nature uh, to all of this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we call it, you know, in ecology, we call it succession. So a community, you know, a vegetation community burns down and you start over and things start to slowly grow back. You get the grasses, you get the annuals, you get the shrubs, you get the trees, you know, and it, and it sort of progressively comes back. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what we want to see is we want to see that, that community that was there historically, the timber, the whatever, and that's what we associate with that part of the Sierra Nevadas or that mm -hmm. part of the Central Valley or the Chaparral community in Southern California. Um, and, and we need to realize that what we saw 50 years ago isn't what's going to be there 100 years from now. It's going to change, mm -hmm. you know, always uh, sort of uh, cyclical. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, let the natural communities do what natural communities do, but be very aware of things like invasive species and disease outbreaks and all the other factors that, you know, humans have had a very deep impact on. And so this mentality of, uh, you know, the set it and forget it kind of, kind of mentality, <laughs> remember that phrase, uh, you know, it just doesn't work. We have to have an active hand in management. You know, we are here today because of a hundred years of decision-making in California that put us here today. Mm -hmm. Some decisions good, many decisions were bad. Mm -hmm. um, and our ecosystems, our environment, our built environment reflect those decisions. And so it's not a switch we're just going to flip and change things you know, immediately. It's gonna take us 50 or hundred years to figure out how to do things better. <laughs> 
So kind of closing out our conversation, um, what what do you think will need to happen today? Um, we've talked about a lot of different things like changing the conversation, even how we frame wildfire seasons versus wildfire year. Um, but what do you think will have to happen in order to ensure a better tomorrow in regard to wildfires? Well, so in, in 2014, we held a conference in Sacramento that was uh, kind of like a blue ribbon commission, if you will. We brought people from around the United States and California to talk about wildfire issues. And the two very important pieces of the puzzle were education and research, hmm. right? And, and sort of universally, it didn't matter where you came from in the country or, or the state, all of the participants said from, from a wildland fire or an urban interface fire perspective, we're easily a generation behind structure and high rise firefighting, hmm. right? Um, that has advanced uh, for a number of reasons um, over the years. Uh, in 1973, the Nixon administration had created a, a Blue Ribbon Commission and they published a, a document called America's Burning. Um, and it fundamentally changed the way we build uh, in the United States and our cities, our buildings, our, our high rises, everything changed after that. A lot of the codes and things that we now take for granted are the results of that. Um, we need something like that for, for wildland and urban interface fires, right? Mm -hmm. We need that kind of effort. And so when this group got together and said, hey, research and education become the tools to move this forward, because we've seen it happen. We saw it happen in 1973. We need to see it happen today. Mm -hmm. you know, there, was, uh, there was a gentleman, his name's Ed Pulaski. Um, in 1911, he created a tool that bears his name today, the Pulaski. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple hand tool that's used on wildland fire. If you were to take Ed Pulaski off of a fire, uh, he worked for the Forest Service, if you were to take him off a fire in 1911 and drop him on a modern wildland fire, it would be immediately recognizable, right? I mean, no, they're not wearing t-shirts and jeans anymore, right? <laughs> but a lot of the same tactics, the strategies, the basic function of how you deal with wildland fire has remained very much the same. Yeah, we have aerial resources and other things and bigger equipment and all that, but fundamentally a lot of things have remained the, just simply the same. Now think about taking somebody in the military off the battlefield in 1911 and dropping them onto a modern battlefield today. Completely unrecognizable, right? The technology, the equipment, the standards, the tactics, you know, so much has dramatically changed. You know, so so we need to have that same sort of mentality within uh, wildland firefighting, um, and we really need that kind of focus. And I'll, I'll I'll end with with this: is the focus also also needs to be on firefighter health and safety, mm -hmm. right? Uh, cancer uh, rates and firefighters dramatically higher than the average population. Um, heart attack and stroke uh, are are typically the number one uh, killers for for firefighters. Uh, including our wildland firefighters. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, issues related to PTSD and, and, and suicide are higher in this population than the average population as well. Um, and so we need to take that very seriously and invest in the kinds of resources. You know, I go out on these wildland fires and I see these firefighters struggling on a 24 hour shift mm -hmm. with absolutely no respiratory protection. And mm -hmm. they are breathing in and working in some of the most toxic and unsafe environments imaginable to humans. Mm -hmm. And they do this for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to do better for these folks. Mm -hmm. And to your point, kind of moving it back to the discussion that we had earlier, um, resources and staffing are within the scope of our control. And so, again, those, there, are, there are very practical things that we can do 
on a here and now basis to be able to protect and prepare well in that regard. Um, Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to be on our podcast. Um, Do you have any concluding remarks before we sign off for the day? I just say one last piece is the education piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, uh, we've, we've created a program at uh, Cal State San Marcos that's the first of its kind uh, really in the nation that's specifically a degree program in wildland urban interface. But as, as important as that is for the practitioners and those involved with wildland firefighting, we also need to educate our, our decision makers at uh, local and, and, and state and federal government level. Right. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. Those decision makers are going to set the policies, uh, establish the protection standards and the ordinances and things for their communities. And so the more they understand what needs to be done and how to do it, uh, the quicker we can move toward a, a more resilient community. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, hopefully this podcast helps along the process of that education piece. But thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time again. Um, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. For more information on WRCOG and the COGCAST, please visit our website at www.wrcog.us. For more information about Riverside County's efforts on COVID-19, please visit rivcoph.org coronavirus.